specific word of the week for this episode because I can't believe well actually I can believe but we're at the same point again if I'm being honest I knew with absolute certainty that we would be back in this very same cycle I just hoped for otherwise but here we are a black man Tyree Nichols from Memphis savagely beaten and tased by six police officers all of it caught on video But in this case, the five officers who brutalized Nichols, the ones who delivered blow after blow, at one point propping up his lifeless body against a police car, they were black. The officer who tased him and said on his body camera that he hoped his fellow officers would, quote, stomp him out, referring, of course, to Nichols. Well, he was white. And this was so strange. He hasn't been charged with anything. He's just been relieved of duty. And his name wasn't released to the public until last Monday. Gee, I wonder why. Now, because the officers who beat Nichols to death are black, the conservative white folks are labeling this black on black crime, which is racist in itself. But let me not get distracted. It seems a whole lot of white people on social media were very confused when I and many other black people labeled this evil act a function of white supremacy. And that confused the shit out of them because they do not understand that the entire culture of policing is built on white supremacist violence. In this case, the race of the officers didn't matter, but the race of the victim did. Because one thing is for sure and two things are for certain. Those five black officers would never have beaten a white man like that. This isn't to say that there has never been a case of where white people have not been victims of police violence. They have. But the system of policing almost since the beginning was designed to dehumanize and terrorize black people, to control the movements and freedoms of black people, to prevent any disruption to the system of white privilege and institutional racism, and also to protect white people and their property. That was the point of policing. It may sound harsh, But let me give you a quick historical recap on policing. So back when America was on our 13 colonies, the police, called watchmen then, weren't the most respectable people. Sometimes they were given police-like duties because it was a form of punishment. These so-called officers drank and slept on the job. And the way it worked is that they were funded by rich people to protect their shit. Stop me if this sounds familiar. Fast forward to the 1800s in the North, police were hired by businesses to protect property and commercial centers. Police in the South were protecting another very important economic institution. Think you can guess what it is? Slavery. The police had two primary jobs in the South, catching runaway slaves and preventing slave revolts. And during the Civil War, the military essentially functioned as the police. When Reconstruction happened, the police still behaved as they did when they were on slave patrols. They reinforced racial order, segregation, and terrorized freed slaves. 
What started to happen, particularly once immigrants from other countries arrived, is that politics was becoming more intertwined with policing. Politicians and businessmen in various communities used the police to stop any worker unrest, especially when it came to organized labor movements. They used the police to shut all that shit down and protect who? Rich ass white people and capitalism. Post Reconstruction, the police enforced Jim Crow laws and did everything possible to undermine the civil rights movement. It was the police who led the attack on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965 with their billy clubs, dogs, and militarized vehicles, a violent act that became known as Bloody Sunday. Oh, and let's also not forget that in many areas in the South, the Ku Klux Klan collaborated with the police to lynch black people and to terrorize them. But something else very pivotal happened in 1965 besides Bloody Sunday. That's when President Lyndon B. Johnson asked Congress to pass the Law Enforcement Assistance Act, which under the federal government would supply local police with military grade weapons that were being used in the war in Vietnam. Those same weapons were used to stop the Watts unrest in 1965, in which 34 people were killed. Over the years, the police got more diverse. The size and scope of the departments grew exponentially, but the culture of policing itself never changed. A 2006 FBI intelligence report revealed that white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups had strategically infiltrated police departments all across the country and that many in law enforcement were sympathetic to white supremacist causes. A lot of those dudes that got arrested for storming the Capitol on January 6th, they were former and current police. So how does all this show up? and five black officers murdering Tyree Nichols. Because the police were built on a foundation that prioritized property and territory over public safety, because it's built on a foundation that encourages warfare on black bodies, because it is built on a foundation of stopping all forms of resistance to structural racism and inequality and capitalistic exploitation, young men like Tyree Nichols are considered a worthy sacrifice to an institution that has an insatiable lust for crushing black spirits. I don't know where we go from here, but I do know one thing, and it's really fucked up to think about. We don't possess the will, nor the courage, or the conviction to chart a new course. And now on to today's show. My guest today is truly the homie. We're both from Detroit. We both went to Michigan State, albeit at separate times. And I'm so proud of him because he has become one of the most electrifying motivational speakers in the world. In the world, Craig. He has a new book out called UOU, Ignite Your Power, Your Purpose, and Your Why. I listened to the audiobook, finished it in two days. Exceptional. His journey is really incredible, which you will learn about more in a moment Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Eric Thomas. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, E.T., I've been waiting to get you on this podcast for a long time. So many of my friends just love your work, love your personality. Obviously, you're you're very well known as one of the best, if not the best, motivational speaker in the country, if not the world. Let's put some extra on it. And so that they'll be very closely paying attention to this, especially my husband, who's a huge fan of yours and my best friend, like both of them. I really, really love you, listen to you all the time. But I wanted to start this podcast off with a question I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Let me say this. I don't want to hijack your show. I got to tell you this, though. We always see each other on the move. I've never had a chance to really sit down with you and just let you know, man, how proud I am of you. Rodney Patterson is the first time I heard your name. You know, he was just telling me, you got to meet this person. Like, she's from Detroit, too. And you know what I'm saying? Like, and so, you know, I got an opportunity to watch you, you know, on TV, do your thing. Got a chance, you know, um, to go to Mumford. And you, like, right there in the, I was with the babies all summer. And you, like, right there in the, you know what I'm saying, picture up in the auditorium. Your journey, man, went to, of course, the Black History Museum in D.C. You know, I'm like, oh, she in there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm from Detroit. I'm like, she in there. And you know how how challenging it is when you're from Detroit. I'm a real Detroit baby in that my mom worked for Ford. My father worked for GM. So the whole dream and goal was you're going to finish high school and you're going to work at the plant. You know what I'm saying? And just to see you do your thing as a native of Detroit, super proud of you. But more importantly, my baby girl you know, is a Michigan State grad. She also got her master's at Michigan State. And so she's followed your journey, you know, as well. And so, you know, I just had to tell you, you know, like I said, because you always on the, we always on the move when we see each other, just like, man, how proud I am of you. And um, yeah, you you created a legacy that's out of this world. But um, unbothered, I got to be real with you. I have moments of unbothered. You know what I'm saying? Like, I haven't been the person. Not you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to get unbothered in pieces. You know, maybe about six years ago, I was on stage and I, I felt myself being two people. I was like speaking and then worried about what they thought about what I was saying, you know, because I had really jumped into the, you know, white male corporate, you know, industry. You know, and I found myself like, E, what you doing? Like, I didn't sound like I did when I was at a black church. You know what I'm saying? Like, when I'm in a black church, I'm just free. I'm just doing my thing. And I was thinking about what I was thinking about. And I was like, when you start doing that? And I realized it was kind of like, yo, are, are you bothered by some of the stuff you might say that is truth, but they may be feeling some type of way about it? And so maybe six years ago is when I was like, yo, I'm just going to be myself if you like it. You hire me if you don't like it. You don't hire me, but I'm not about to shrink no more. So I think six years ago was when I was like, you know, liberated and kind of free. Um, but I still find myself at times like, hey, don't you go back into that, 
you know what I'm saying? Don't go back into that space. So yeah, six years ago, corporately, I felt like I was unbothered. Um, and, and just for the audience, uh, I know the name Rodney Patterson, who, uh, so, uh, you know, E.T. and I, we were, we were there at different times, both went to Michigan State. Uh, if you're watching the recorded or the video version of this, you'll see he has on the Michigan State gear. I have on the Detroit gear. We both, as he mentioned, have very similar um, paths. And Rodney Patterson was, um, you know, an administrator at Michigan State, also a pastor, uh, like yourself. And he married me. <laughs> he married me and my husband. Yeah. And when I was a student at Michigan State, Rodney Murray Edwards, who you talk about in your book, in your latest book, rather, uh, those are both black administrators at Michigan State who really took a very active role in helping a lot of black students. They brought you to Michigan State. That was a big part of your journey. And we're going to get into that in a moment. But. You know, you you mentioned like how six years ago that you you really stopped, you know, mostly caring about what people think. You know, it, it's fascinating reading about your journey in your in your latest book, which is a bestseller. It's great, especially a great audio book to listen to. I think, given how powerful your voice is, your motivational messages, it's it's like the perfect book for that. But. You know, one of the things that really struck me, I knew a little bit about your history, but learning the full history, especially your family lineage. Let's start when you were a teenager and you made the decision to leave your house to, as you said, you decided to be homeless. OK, we're going to start here. Uh, you made the you made the decision to leave your house because you found out that your mother and uh, the father who raised you, you know, by virtue of your stepfather, they had been lying to you about your biological father. You thought your stepfather was your biological father. So going back to that time, sort of take the audience and myself through why, uh, how that resentment in you started to build and what it manifested into. You know what? I think the biggest thing why I left was I kind of felt like, you know, one, my mom was heavy on the don't lie boy. Like you would get beat down, you know what I'm saying, for lying. You could do anything else. And it was like a baby whipping. But the lying boy, my mom would go in. And I was like, yo, how could you go in on me like that when you was lying the whole time? You know, so for me, it was a betrayal of who is this woman? You know what I'm saying? And then. I couldn't really write about it. Like, you know, you only got so much space in, in a book. But like, yo, my mama, uh, she a beast. I'm like, yo, you had all these people cooperate? It's like, how did you pull this off? Like, you're talking about, I got three grandmas. You know what I'm saying? So ain't no, ain't, like, ain't nobody saying nothing about it. I don't have no cousins, no uncles, no aunties. I'm with my biological father's family. Like, I'm, I'm over there. Like, I'm with my cousins. And I don't know who my man is. I thought he was a friend of the family. So it to me, it was almost like, whoa, my whole life is a lie. And so I kind of felt like in order for me to find myself, I got to distance myself from what I thought was to kind of figure out, like, who am I? What am I? Like, what's the truth? And I guess I was so young, like, that's a lot at 12 and 13. No, that's a lot. And even though we went to counseling, you know, I ain't trying to be disrespectful, but a lot of them were like white professionals that were coming with the theory boy. We weren't really dealing with nothing for real, bro. We was like, look at this ink spot. I'm like, bro, I ain't trying to be funny. I don't know what I see. You know what I'm saying? I just know I'm pissed. And so I was like, yo, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta leave my mom 
and I got to try to figure this thing out on my own because I felt like she was so biased. And so that's really why I left the crib. I wasn't, I never thought, thought it through, as you see in the book. I never thought it through. I forgot Detroit had winners. You know what I'm saying? I forgot it was going to be cold. You know what I'm saying? So I'm in abandoned buildings, freezing to death. You know, but no, I, I just felt like I got lied to and betrayed to by my best friend in the whole wide world. You know what I'm saying? Like my mother was my life. And so I just was like, yo, I got to go. I got to I got to leave you so I could figure me out. So what was her rationale for not telling you? You know, mine was like I was going to get to it. You know what I'm saying? She was like, I was going to get to it. I, you know, she was just like, I just felt like it wasn't the time. Like you was young, you know, you was 12. You know, I just felt like maybe when you were 16, 17, like, I don't know to this day, you know, it's funny because of the book. You know, I think my mom has to think about it in a way now. She probably didn't have to think about it. You know, she's probably 30 some years old when this happened. She was 17 when she got pregnant. You know, but my mom was saying the other day, it was weird. She just called me and was like, almost like sorry again and she was like not sorry like i was then but sorry that i had no real plan she was like yo i was a kid when it happened she's like i was 17. like my whole world had gotten rocked and then your father wasn't there for me you know then my mom kicked me out the house so she was like yo i was by myself like i, I didn't even have time to think about it and then when i found somebody that loved you and that loved me because I had dated other men, but they didn't want to deal with my son. This man was willing to take you as his own. She was like, yo, I was so happy that we found a life in Detroit. I got to leave Chicago where a lot of this happened. I got a job at four. She was like, yo, I was so geeked about this life that we had. I didn't even have a plan of how we were going to. And so I was like, Mama, I feel you, but you know what I'm saying? it didn't affect you like it affected me. But, you know, I, I feel you. So she said the other day, she's like, yo, I just still don't know why I never told you. So I was like, leave it alone. It worked out. We good. Well, maybe it was if she sensed that your father wouldn't be there for you. Maybe she was worried that that might do even more damage. So why even tell you? She pulled it off. Let me just say that. I mean, that is, that's quite elaborate. And in the book, which is, by the way, uh, everybody listening, is called You Owe You, Ignite Your Power, Your Purpose, and Your Why. And you use that incident as a tentpole to discuss victimhood and how we can make ourselves victims and really do a lot of damage because the thing you say over and over in this book is feelings are not facts. Separate your feelings from the evidence, which I, I thought was, you know, really a, a, a aha kind of moment, if you will. Now, with all this built up resentment and anger that you have, you've left home, as you mentioned, you're sleeping in abandoned buildings. When did you feel a turning point in terms of you actually dealing with and breaking down that resentment that you felt? When the winter hit, that was a turning point. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh. When the winter hit, it was like, yo, bro, you ain't think this through. You know what I'm saying? Like, you should have thought this through. But 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 being honest, I started um going to church. And I ain't never really go to church for like that. Like we ain't grew up in church. So I wasn't on no religious stuff. I just had a good friend who started taking me. And the messaging was the first time I really heard a messaging of like forgiveness. That was the first time I had really Cause I ain't grew up in church. So it wasn't a whole bunch of like forgiveness moments. You know what I'm saying? At the family reunion, you know what I'm saying? Like we wasn't on that, you know, uh, but church was the first time I had really heard where you're like, when you don't forgive people, it hurts you. I had never really heard that before. 
And so it was almost a situation where I was selfish, where it was like, yo, E, sound like you can't move forward. You don't deal with your mom and your dad. And I'll never forget, my mom hit me up, which I thought was strange. We had started having a relationship and she knew I was going to church and she knew I was starting to get serious about it. And she was like, don't the Bible say you have to forgive others and God will forgive you as you forgive others? And I was like, it does. You know what I'm saying? So she's like, well, it don't sound like God forgiving you because you ain't forgave me for whatever. And, and, and it was my mom, but she hit me. And that was the point where I, I was probably about 18, getting my GED on my way to college. And I was like, yo, you're right, mom. I do have to start looking at this in a different way. I do have to look at what I got. I, I didn't get a man that lied. I got a man who was like, yo, I love you and you mine. So I'm going to give you my last name. And, you know, if I die, you on my wheel. And I'm coming up to the school for you when you act a fool because I'm your father. And I'm going to get up and go to GM every day to make sure you ate. Jimmy, I couldn't see, uh, Jimmy, I couldn't see that when I was 13. I didn't see my man looking out for me. I just saw you lying. You're not my father. You can't tell me what to do. Don't whip me. Don't say nothing to me. But as I got older and mature, I started looking at like, yo, this is a blessing that he would even marry my mom and he would give me his last name. It's not as bad as I thought it was. But it took me to like 18, 19, 20 to start thinking like that. Once you left at 13, the house, did you stay gone? Did you never come back? Yeah, I, I came back. I said, I'd be, I'd be like maybe weeks. Then I'd leave again. I'd be going a month. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I was like becoming a professional runaway. You know what I'm saying? And then when I hit like 16, I, I guess I had run away enough that I was like, all right, I think I could do this and not come back. And then I'm going to tell you why I really left. I don't even know if I wrote about it in the book, but I really left because my sister was starting to get torn. You know, like my baby sister was like, I love my brother. Y'all doing my brother wrong. My baby sister started, you know, she was like, a smart student, you know, my sister was an engineer. She went to Michigan, you know what I'm saying? She always handled her business. So you could tell she was kind of like treating dad different because of how I was getting treated, starting to treat mom different. And I was just like, E, don't do your sister like that. Like you were in a bad space, but that is her father. That is her mother. Like, don't do that. And so I kind of left because I was like, I'm, I'm really now disrupting the union in the house. And I was like, just go. You could talk to your sister from being gone. But I can tell she was suffering the most from our challenges. And I was like, don't be selfish, bro. Just go ahead and do your thing and, and, and keep your sister in a good space. A lot of people struggle with forgiveness, especially uh, a situation like yours. You know, some people would say like, oh, well, you know, he has a right to be mad forever. But uh, that obviously is not the option that you chose. The church was one foundation in helping you establish that path to forgiveness. What were some other things that got you on the road to forgiveness? HBCU, man, Oakwood. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, going to an HBCU, while I'm grateful for Michigan State, I see I wasn't ready. Like, I wasn't emotionally ready. You know, I wasn't academically ready. And when you go to an HBCU, I would just assume all of them are like, Oakwood, you know, your professor is black. You know, you're, you're, the, the president is black. You know, the VP is black. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like your auntie is the, is the VP. You know what I'm saying? And so being at the HBCU, it wasn't academics. It was about me as a whole person. And so they could see, oh man, you, 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 you struggling. What happened? Uh, well, I don't have no transcript because I left school when I was 16. Oh, okay. Let's sit down and talk about that. What happened? My mom. Oh, okay. Come by my house. 
you know, the HBCU, you actually are taught by, you know, professor whoever. You're going to church with professor whoever. You're going to the house to eat with professor whoever. You know, you become like a son to professor whoever. You know, so at the HBCU, they really put the academics down for a while and they built me as a human. You know, they helped me to deal with, you know, just personal issues. I remember being in English class and even if you didn't write well, you was going to learn something with the Eyes of the Prize series. You know what I'm saying? Like, you was going to learn about Emmett Till. Like, you was going to learn, like, you were going to grow as a human. Okay, your verb, your, your subject verb, agreement might be off, but you're going to learn about what we've gone through as a people. We're going to travel together to Atlanta and go to the Martin Luther King Museum. You know, we're we going to go to Birmingham and we're going to go to the church where the girls were. Like, we're going to go visit together. And so they built me as a human first and then spiritually, and then academically, and then they challenged me to go to Michigan State. It was that HBCU, and then of course, Dee Dee went with me, you know, and she, you know, focused sister from the city, did what she was supposed to do, finished on time, and just kept pushing me. So I ended up getting married early. Dee Dee was a rock, you know, the church, because you go to HBCU, like you gotta go to church, you gotta go to chapel, you know what I'm saying? Like all of these, you don't just get to go to class. Like you got to go to chapel every day. And so that mixture of my professors, the environment at Oakwood, and then Didi, you know, were the fundamental things that helped me to heal. Because I was, man, I was like in college, I was 19 um, pretty much when I got there. But when you talk about hurt, you know, you talk about bruised, battered. It's one thing, man, when your daddy ain't in your life, but when you, when you and your mama beefing, it's a different pain, man, when you and your mama having a strained relationship. And I tell people all the time, homelessness is not the living in abandoned buildings in the cold wasn't what hurt me. Not talking to my mama every day and me and my mom having like, you know, those those weeks or months that we would go without talking. That was probably the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. How did you reconnect with your biological father? When I had my son, you know, when Jalen was born, I was like, OK. You and your old dude don't have to have a relationship, but a tree is only as strong as its roots, you know? And so you got to try to connect your son with his grandfather. You got to connect him, you know? So for me, it was more Jalen being born. You know, we got some stuff in our community that's just like for all of us. So back in the day, it was Martin Luther King, it was Malcolm X, you know, for this generation, well, me, it was T.D. Jakes, you know what I'm saying? So T.D. Jakes would have that manpower boy. And so I would go to the manpower boy with my father. You know, it's funny, like in the hood, you know, you got to be strong and tough, but he would take his boys and I would take my boys. Like he would, you know, like we would both be at the conference with our crew. Like he had his boys. I had my squad. Like we didn't go by ourselves as father and son. We had our crew, but between T.D. Jakes, Miles Monroe, Dr. Miles Monroe and Fred Hammond singing, that'll break you. You know what I'm saying? That's enough right there to break a brother. And me and my father got closer doing those. We would go yearly. Um, so we would go there and, and, and just being in T.D. Jake's presence, the late, great Dr. Miles Monroe presence, the psalmist, you know, Fred Hammond. And that's kind of how the healing process kind of began between, you know, my father, but really it was my son. And then my baby girl was born. And I was just like, man, y'all can't, it, the money's good. The fact that y'all going to state, you know, that was already, you know what I'm saying? Like, y'all going to Michigan State. Jalen was a general manager for Izzo for four years. Uh, T. Watt and uh, Draymond hooked that up. 
you know, so it was already like, y'all already going to state, y'all gonna know Rodney, y'all gonna know Murray. They all went through the magic program. But I was like, it's not enough to go through those and get set up for greatness and still not know your family. Like you still gotta be connected to that side of your family, you know? So that's why I did it. Not necessarily for me, cause I had so many great men in my life, but for my babies, I was like, y'all gotta know the Monday side of your family. And y'all got to be connected to the Mondays. And there's no way you're going to be connected if you're not connected to your grandfather. I mean, how did the path to forgiveness for your father differ than maybe your mother? Well, mom is like, yo, we got history. You know what I'm saying? So you got to let mom off the hook. You know, she she did too much fun. I remember when I worked at McDonald's on Finkel in Wyoming. Oh, my God. Not Finkel in Wyoming. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I worked at the one on Finkel in Wyoming. Yeah, it, was, hey, it was like the wild, wild west. It really was. <laughs> they would jump in the counter. I, I mean, I was 16. We was in fights. And then on, then on Friday night and Saturday night, it would be like cars lined up. I don't know if I should say this on here, but was Mozambique was right there and the, the cars was lined up. You know what I'm saying? So, And, and for people listening, watch, watch Mozambique is a, is a strip club, by the way. <laughs> so. You know what I'm saying? So the cars would be lined up from there. You know, we would be doing our thing, you know. Um, and for me, I just was like, man, I, I got to. You know, with my father, with my mom, man, I got to, I, I, you know, I, I can't lose this connection. And one time I got sick. I worked from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. And my mom, literally, I had a flu. And they called my mom. We hadn't talked in forever. And my mom came and picked me up and brought me to the crib. And um, chicken noodle soup me. You know what I'm saying? She just brought me back to hell. And it's crazy because we weren't even really talking. But some kind of way they called my mom. My mom came and scooped me. And so I was like, yo, you can't be mad at your mom, man, for trying to do the right thing. But my father, we didn't have no history. So it was the spiritual leaders like, Pastor Doggett, like, you know, T.D. Jakes, you know, uh, Dr. Miles Monroe. It was those guys, the Naeem Akbars, the Rodney Patterson. It was those guys. I was like, E, you got to let it go, bro. Like, you're never going to go to the next level in your life holding on to this weight. And they were right, because here's what's crazy. Anybody that know me before E.T. the hip hop preacher, I could preach. I ain't going to lie. Like, I was a good speaker. But when I forgave my father, like for real, for real, 150 pounds of weight had come off of me. And I was like, man, my chest came out my, you know, and I don't know if you remember Antoine Fisher is the name of the, the, the movie. I remember watching Antoine Fisher. He was trying to find his family. And it was a scene where he went to his auntie and my auntie was the one that she would not tell me who my father was, but she would tell me who my father was. Like she would hint like, my brother is your real father. She would hit. And when I saw that part in the movie, I fell on the bed, off the bed in a fetal position. And I started crying like a baby. And my wife was like, yo, you got to go do it. Like, you got to stop talking about it. You got to go do it. So I left Huntsville, Alabama in the book, drove to Chicago and was like, for my own healing and my son and my daughter, like, I got to do this. So for my father, I never really felt like he deserved my forgiveness. But I felt like I deserved to forgive him so that I could heal and get better. So it wasn't even about him. It was just like, E, you a hot mess, bro. Like, you just dysfunctional. Like, you just can't get over some of your sins and some of your challenges. Like, bro, you got to let my man go so you can free yourself. So a lot of it had to do with me freeing myself, you know, first. And he was just like an innocent bystander. <laughs> 
that is an amazing amount of self-awareness. Um, and it seems like just knowing your, your background and, of course, in this book, it comes across that this is something that you've had for a long time. I want to get more into the book and definitely uh, the UOU challenge. Uh, but we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back with more from E.T., the hip hop preacher. <laughs> So y'all not going to believe this, but uh, I got another updated story to tell about that damn squirrel. Now, for those who haven't been keeping up or listening to the last couple podcasts, which, by the way, is your fault. It's us against these squirrels, us as in me and my husband, because these squirrels, they were completely disrespecting our backyard. They come back there. They eat. They leave shit everywhere. My husband bought an animal trap and we caught two squirrels. One we let go at a nearby park and the other one I let out in the backyard, which my husband was not pleased with. Some of our methods in trying to rid ourselves of the squirrels before we bought the trap were frowned upon by PETA. But I don't want to get into that right now. So the backyard squirrel brought his happy ass back and we thought we'd remove most of their food source. But it turns out there were still some remnants. First couple times he returned, he was kind of scouting the area, seeing what was what. He didn't leave a mess at first, but then he started with that bullshit again. So my husband got out the trap. Bam, got him again. This time, the plan was going to be to take him to a park that was further away than we let loose the other one. But that plan was derailed by, of all people, our exterminator. Now, I know you think you know where this is going, but you don't. Our exterminator comes by every few months to check for termites in our backyard because we have this wooden pergola. And here in Cali, termites are a real thing. He also gets rid of some spider webs and, you know, just generally checks for other shit. Now, he did his normal backyard routine. And at some point, my husband went back in the backyard because he was ready to take the squirrel to the park to let him go. When he got to the trap, no squirrel. The squirrel didn't magically grow hands and let himself out. The squirrel doesn't know magic, far as I know, and didn't make himself disappear. It was the exterminator who let out the squirrel. And my husband was pissed. Me, all I could do is laugh. I let the squirrel go before because I was starting to feel bad because it was caged up in the rain. And now somebody else did it, even though my husband was going to free the squirrel. So I guess now me and the exterminator are both the Harriet Tubman of squirrels. And I don't know what it is with this particular squirrel. Why does he keep coming back? I know there's a little bit of food in our backyard, these overly ripe small fruits that we're going to pick up because we're tired of this shit. But after what happened last time and now being caught again, I hope to God the squirrel has learned its lesson. But so far, it's the squirrel two and us zero. And now back to more with Eric Thomas. Your latest book, uh, UOU, is, is, is certainly not your first. You've been self-published before then. This book has done exceptionally well. What made you decide that now was the time to do this type of book and with this type of messaging? You know, CJ, my right hand, uh, also, you know, Michigan State grad. You know, C was like, E, like, I know you underground. You know what I'm saying? He like, you're not, you're not that underground now, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just like, I knew you before. You know, you knew I knew you with Rodney. And so it's like, E, I need you on the pocket, bet. But like in general, like I don't have a publisher or I don't have a marketing agent. So I don't 
reach out to podcasts or TV shows to be on shows. Like I, I just, for whatever reason, like that's just not my thing. I'm literally blue collar. Like that's just my thing. I'm, I'm really Detroit for real, for real. You know, so it has to happen organically for me. But C was like, E, there's a lot of people that's not going to know you from our normal reach, bro. He was like, yo, we need a machine now to get you out there more. He's like, yo, I'm your right hand. Like you killing me. Like you put me in a position where I can't do my job. So he was like, I think the best thing to do right now is New York Times bestseller. And I was like, bro, how you know we gonna get on the list just because we write a book? Like, you know what I'm saying? That's hard. He was like, I don't care. Like, that's the goal we're going for because if we hit that, you know, you got a PhD. It's a pecking order. We live in America, bro. It is what it is. That's going to take you to another level. And then the book is going to get out to way more people than that didn't know you. So I was like, all right, bet. So C really came up with the idea. And it just so happened that he thought about it six months before COVID. So we were able to get a publishing deal, you know, which was like, you know, like, wow, we got a publishing deal. Like, yo, I'm not necessarily on TV or people don't know me like that. He was like, bro, kill it. We, you know, so we got a deal. And then COVID struck, which was terrible for a lot of people. But for us, it gave us a full year to write, you know, unbothered. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wasn't on stage no more. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't doing nothing. So it just happened that we got the deal. COVID happened. So we got a chance to really get in the studio and do some serious reflecting, writing. And yeah, praise God, we uh, we did it. We we hit the list. I think we made it number nine out of 10, but we hit that joker. As I mentioned in the, in the first half of this podcast, the, the 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 crux of the book is about how we get in our own way. You talk to such a cross section of people from you know uh, people who have been incarcerated, who are currently incarcerated, corporate speaking. You know, obviously, just the general public overall. Young people. You work with a lot of athletes. So, what are some of the factors that you identify and how we? often get in our own way that are common threads among the cross-section of people that you often speak to? You know, I think the first thing is we want to blame, you know, and here's my deal though. Hey, if you could keep that same energy that you use to blame other people and then flip it on you, it just seemed like for whatever reason, we get so mad at other people for not showing up for us. You know, I had somebody the other day that was mad. It was like, I asked them to post something on their main page and they didn't. I was like, that's their main page. Like, that's not your main page. Like, why are you tripping? Like, that, that, they social media don't belong to you. That, 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 that's their social media. They have the right to put you on stories, main page, or put you on nothing. But it's like, yo, where's that energy for building your own by following? Like, what are you going to do to build your own stuff? So for me, I think the biggest challenge is, you know, my mom lied to me about my biological father. My father wasn't in my life. Bruh. I can't control none of that, but I should have been like, why can't you read or write? Why are you having a problem comprehending? Like, why aren't you going to school and taking school serious? So I think the first major challenge that I see is people want to look out the window and not in the mirror. Like people don't want to take ownership or responsibility for the part that they play, you know, in the situation. Number two, when you talked about it, like it's so much easier to get in our feelings because Feelings don't have to be truthful. It ain't no truth in it. And you feel super justified. But when you start looking at facts, as I said, my man went to GM every day. That ain't easy to take care of you. He didn't tell you who your real father was, but he gave you his last name. Like, let's look at the facts, bro. 
the, the facts is you never got a whipping because you didn't do good in school. You got a whipping because you took the phone off the hook so the teacher couldn't call. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you didn't you you said you ain't getting no progress report. You did get a progress report. So you didn't get a whipping for your grades. You got a whipping for lying. Like he gave you four chances. But you want to go, oh, he whipped me. I, my man next door ain't getting no whipping. Why am I still getting whipping? Maybe my man next door ain't lying about his grades. Like, I don't know. And so those are the two things that I really saw that revolutionized my life. Take personal responsibility for what you've done wrong. Number two, don't always look at how you feel about something. Like, really look at the facts. Why? Because we talked about it before. Man, if you start doing stuff off empirical evidence, if you start doing just making decisions off of statistics, Oh, you got a way better chance of being successful. Now, uh, one of the things you do, because um, uh, I mentioned you do talk a lot with young people, but you specifically talk to a lot of young professional athletes. Like you speak at the uh, NBA's, I think it's the rookie transition camp. Yeah. Because as a sports writer, you know, when things unfortunately go wrong with some of the players, first thing I hear from people, they ought to have a, a some kind of program where the rookies can learn. They do. They have for years. All right. That don't mean everybody listens. Right, <laughs> OK, right, right, right. but given your work with young people in particular, I know that people of our generation like you, I'm also um, Gen X. That we look down on this generation and say, oh, they don't get it. They're so entitled, this and that. And I'm like, they do a lot of the same things that we do, okay? It's, it's not like that. But from your vantage point, um, because you work so closely with young people, what do you see as some of the challenges they're facing in today's climate? Maybe challenges that we didn't have to deal with um, or the things that are getting in their way? I'm going to be real. I think the biggest one, and I know we hear this a lot, but how they experience the internet. I don't think the internet is evil. I think how they experience the internet is what's a challenge because they aren't taught like how to use it. It's just thrown in your hand. It's just like, here go the internet, like go for it. You feel me? And here's what I laugh at. And I think it's funny with my son. I'm like, bro, when I was growing up in the D, only time we saw rich people was on Lifestyles of the rich and famous. I I I I didn't know what rich was. Everybody in my neighborhood lived in the same house, drove the same car. You know, they all worked at Ford, GM, and Chrysler. Like we went, it was nothing need to compare nothing. We all had the same stuff. I'm like, bro, you 22 years old when he was at state, and I was like, bro, everything you do on the internet, like you watching other people and you watching how much money they make, you watching what they wear. So so the that's the one of the biggest challenges I think is not the internet. But you're watching it, and now you've gotten into this comparison thing. Now you just can't be you. I ain't had those kind of pressures. I was probably five foot one for a grip. You know, I was in high school, and they were still like, yo, what you doing here? I was at four. They thought I was supposed to be in Tab. I'm like, yo, I'm in high school. They're like, you at Tab Middle School. I'm like, no, I go to Henry Ford. Like, here go my ID. And my son, and it's like, yo, bruh, I think he's six four. You know, but for a long time, it was like, Everybody on the internet tall. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you got this pressure being tall. I was 5'1". It wasn't no, I might have got a little joke, but it wasn't no pressure. Wasn't nobody expecting me to go to the NBA, the NFL. The only people that went to the NBA, the NFL, they were in their little group. I didn't know all of them. Like, when we was a kid, my father used to take me because he played basketball to see uh, Antoine Jovert. We would go watch them play. They weren't on the internet, so the only time you saw them, if you were at Southwestern, you were at Northwestern, you went to Florida Mumford, like you'd see a game, but it wasn't like everywhere you go, NBA, NFL. And so I'm looking at my son, who's a general manager, 
And I'm like, yo, what an opportunity. You with Izzo. Like, you know Draymond him. You know Magic. You know Steve Smith. What a community. But now you got to deal with, I'm just a manager. I'm like, what? In whose world? You're just a manager. Like, that don't, look, at you exposed to everything the player is exposed to. You going to the Final Four. You got a, a ring. You got the jacket. But you still got to be like, you just a, I'm like, oh, Malik, if I would have had the same exposure when I was growing up in the D, I, I don't, ain't no telling where I would be right now. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's the biggest challenge. The number two thing, I think, is expected to do all of this stuff and be all of this stuff at 18, 19. You know, and I get it. I get mad at adults who are tripping like, oh, he in the NBA. I can't believe he did that. I'm like, bro, do you remember what we was doing at 22? I don't want to go back to when I was 21 years old. You know what I'm saying? Like, I made some of the dumbest decisions of my life, and I still didn't sell dope. I still didn't shoot and kill nobody and made some stupid decisions that could have changed my life forever. I was still in front of the mall. I could have went to prison. You know, so you 21 with millions? You 21 with followers? You 21 with these decisions? So I, I think as adults, we need to do a better job of prepping and preparing our babies. You have no right to judge somebody 18 to 30. Like they need a pad. They need mentorship. They need counseling. They need support. They, they don't need us judging. Of course, because, uh, you know, your experiences, your personality, clearly your, your messages really, really, especially, I think, resonate with black men across all age groups. When you look at what some of our brothers are going through now, what are some of the things that you're seeing that are really um, putting them at a disadvantage? You know, I think they bothered. Be real with you. I think they care too much about what everybody, you, you know, when people talk about what I'm able to do, like, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm Malcolm in 2023. I'm Garvey in 2023. I'm Martin Luther King in 2023. Like, when you hear me like, oh, he sound like a preacher. That, bro, I got it from... <laughs> Like, it's, that, it's not new. Frederick Douglass, Dubois, they've been doing this. I'm just doing it in my generation. So one, I don't feel the need not love myself. Like, I don't feel the need not to love my ancestors. And I think a lot of people in this generation, you want to be so rich and famous, you're forgetting what made us rich and famous. And what made us rich and famous was giving back to our community. You know, I, I see all of these posts of, you know, young men, you know, I guess the new thing is you go to a resort. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, hey, let's go to them. I, I love it. But not only did I go to Dubai, I took 20-something kids to Dubai. Not only do I go to the Super Bowl, every, this year, last year I took 25, this year I'm taking 40. So I'm not saying don't do it, but what made our ancestors dope is that when they got their freedom, they came back and they brought more people with them. What made our people dope is that when they got smart and got influenced, Living long, he said, longevity has its place. But I'm about to die so I can make sure that my people eat. So for me, I feel like the number one thing is we're not playing our game, you know? And again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to cause no challenges, but it said envy not thy oppressor and choose none of his ways. So I'm just saying like, yo, <laughs> I love my ancestors and I'm going to do what my ancestors did and that's how I'm going to win. And so when my grandma made us a cake for our birthday, we didn't get two cakes. And we didn't get to eat the whole cake by ourselves. You got a slice, then your cousins got the rest of it, and everybody, and we get to a point where we're getting selfish. You know, we all about money. Bro, I live in Southern California. Bro, it takes money to live in Southern California. I'm not suggesting that you don't make money, but I'm putting kids back through Michigan State. I'm putting kids through o Oakwood. 
And so I think our biggest challenge is we don't love ourselves. You know, we don't we, we don't love where we come from. You know, we don't see that as positive. We want to be like everybody else and do what everybody else is doing. We don't love our skin color. We don't love our, you know, our nose. Our, like, we just don't love ourselves. I think that's number one. I think number two, because we don't love ourselves, we don't see the value of education. And on our kid, I was talking to a young man, I mentored yesterday, I'm helping him to become, I guess, the next, you know, ET. And I explained to him, bro, you just can't be on the internet making money. Like, bro, what are you giving? Like, what, how are you using the internet to help people? What are you, like, what's your weekly message or your monthly message? Like, what are you doing? Like, you can't just be sitting here making money. That's not our MO. Our MO is going to school and learning. One of the few that can go for PWI. And then we come back to our community and we teach our babies the alphabet. We teach them how to read and write. So it wasn't where you get to go to school and you get to pump your chest and you get to walk around like you better than everybody else because you got a degree. No, you were told to go to school. And then when you come home, those that didn't have the opportunity to go, you would teach them what you knew. So I think that's the second thing that's missing. When we do get advantages and we do blow up, we want to keep it to ourselves and we don't want to help, you know, others. And I think we ought to do that. The fascinating thing about watching your rise is that, you know, as you mentioned, being from the D, I'm the same way. It's like organically is is my lane too, right? It feels weird to self-promote. It feels weird to do some of these things. But I realize sometimes I have to do it just uh, to continue to do the things that I want to do. That being said. And you qualified to do it. <laughs> I try to be. That being said, though, I mean. You are reaching probably audiences you never thought you'd reach. Um, you're able to have built a very lucrative uh, speaking business. So how did you handle the fact that just being yourself, you were also becoming a celebrity at the same time, making a lot of money at the same time? How did you handle these new elements that were now a part of your life? So, you know, I actually drew closer to the people who helped me get there. You know, so one of the things I never stopped doing when I got to Michigan State, I started a program for Rodney and Murray. They was getting old, you know what I'm saying? And they, they weren't relevant. I was like, fam, I love y'all. I'm here for you, but you got to let me do it my way. You got to give me the rock. Let me do it my way. So when I blew up, I still do the Advantage program every Monday. So if I'm not physically there and I'm there during the summer, but in the winter, we do it online. I literally, Magic program, I'm still there every year. And this year, I told the babies, y'all do what y'all supposed to do. Murray's asked y'all to, like, he gave y'all a plan if y'all do it. Before it was 500. This year, I was like, look, that ain't working. I'll give y'all two grand cash if y'all do what y'all supposed to do. And so I had 48 kids that did what they were supposed to do. You know what I'm I was like, whoa. Murray was like, yo, you, you got to pull it back. I was like, no, no, I'm good. You know, we went from six people to 48. Like, I didn't know that that would move the needle. So what I'm saying is, I literally, as I, as, as I gained success, I stayed closer to the people that were responsible for me. You know, I call my pastor more, you know, um, I, I go to more conferences. I lean on people like yourself who from the D who making money and saying, yo, what should I do? You know? And so I think a lot of people when they become successful and they don't mean no harm, but they actually separate themselves from the very thing that got them to where they are. I spend more time with the people because here at the end of the day you know this you in southern cal hey you know cali different than detroit you know what i'm saying like it's just a different swag right you know and so when people go oh you the best in the world i try to say the names of the people that helped me get there you know i try to give god his credit you know and i let people know you're right 
I am whatever. Had Martin Luther King never did what he did, E.T. wouldn't be where he is. You know, and honestly, I tell people this all the time. Could you imagine Martin Luther King being alive with social media? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that I have a dream speech? That joker would have went viral. He Like, Martin Luther King would easily have, with his robe on Sundays, you know, a Nike switch sign. He would have his own shoes, the dreams. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so I, I know Malcolm was way doper than I was as a scholar, but they just lived at a time where we didn't have the advantages that we have now. So I make sure I let people know, like, yo, I'm not stupid if it wasn't for my ancestors. And the time that I'm alive, I wouldn't necessarily be doing the stuff that I do. So I think as long as we stay grounded, I think we're going to be okay. But there are a few of us, you know, who like uh, balloons with helium in them. You know, we've allowed ourselves to get away from our roots and we've gotten beside ourselves and we're not as uh, productive to the community as we possibly could be. So, so um, you know, as I mentioned, you work with athletes. You've worked uh, very closely with Chris Paul, Cam Newton, um, Kyrie, like a ton of different athletes that you have worked with. Is this true that you don't charge them anything for the one-on-one? It is. Hey, and Victor Oladipo is your fault. You offered. I never offered. All right. So, because Vic, like, oh, E, but you charged me. I didn't charge you. Your agent called me and told me that this is how much. But but I, I, I don't. You know, and the reason why I don't is because, you, you know, at the end of the day, other communities use their influence and they use their network to help each other. You know, it's not always, you know, money for money. And so I try to be that guy to say, hey, CP3, let's be real. You could do more for me endorsing me than I could the money. Like, I, it's only so much you could do with money, bro. At the end of the day, once you get past 250 grand, it's a tax game. You know what I'm saying? You, you're playing a tax game at this point. You know what I'm saying? So to make 5 million versus 10 million is not going to change the quality of my life. But if I have, if you, if you forward the book for me, that's going to do a lot more for me than charging. So, you know, let me pour into you. And then one day I'm going to need you. I don't know when that is, but I know I, I will. And I, I met CP3. The connection was really, Lawrence Frank, Detroit Piston, you know, head coach. Then he became the GM at LA. And so CP3 was there when I, when he asked me to come and speak. And so I was just like, yo, whatever. I'm going to call you. We'll stay in touch, whatever. But I'll need you at some point. I don't write this very second. But trust me, one of these days, your boy going to need you. And so when it was time to do the book, and uh, CP3, he's so cool. You know that, man. He's so down to earth. He introduced me to the um, CEO of Walt Disney. And I never had nothing like that happen. He was like, I was at the game. I was courtside. He's like, E, come in real quick. And so I was like, oh, man, like, you know people like that? You know what I'm saying? So, um, no, I don't charge. Um, but I'm going to tell you, man, the, the relationship is so rich. And what I learned from just maybe going to a, I don't really do games like that. But if I do go to a game or I'm watching a game, you know, just watching them and being able to be in their inner circle and learn stuff from them. I tell people this. This is the thing that blew my mind with CP3. So we on his private jet, me, him, his brother, his cousin, my son, a couple other people, uh, um, D-Wade's son was on. And we literally talked about vacation Bible school for the first hour. I was dying laughing. I'm like, what you know about vacation Bible school? But just for him and his brother not to be on no big time stuff, you know, but just talking about being in church all day, Sunday, you know, the Sunday meals, the, the, the hymns. And so that's why I love these dudes, man, that I get 
in touch with, and you know, I have time with Cam, of course, got me with Under Armour, you know, it got me connected with Under Armour. And um, so, yeah, man, I, I don't charge, but don't say, just because I'm saying that on here don't mean whoever it is that's listening, like, I'm about to call ET and get a free hookup. We, we, she didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that, but I just thought, you know, given I've been around, you know, professional sports now for almost 30 years. And you see these people, these advisors that come in and out of their lives that usually not. I can't say usually I won't I won't be I won't overgeneralize, but there's a financial relationship that's there. Um, and yes, I, I, it's funny you mentioned that about Chris Paul, because he and I. Uh, we had an opportunity to work together a few years ago and speak to this class at U- USC that is because uh, the USC journalism program is run by that Walt Disney CEO, Bob Iger, is who you're referring to. OK, yeah, uh, is run <laughs> by uh, his wife, Willow Bay. Uh, and so. Um, so, yeah, but I didn't know until then how tight Chris Paul was with Bob Iger, who used to be my boss when I worked at ESPN. So that's. I mean, he's considered one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. So that's a great connection for you uh, to make. I imagine that there's a lot of people who constantly, because you, I mean, you run a, a business built around this that want to do what you do, that want to be motivational speakers and want to travel across the country and that kind of thing. What's your advice to the people who want to try to emulate what you're doing now? Don't do what I'm doing. Like, figure out the motive of why I'm doing what I'm doing. There's so many kids that say they want to be like me, but they don't want to help our people. You know, you want to be Instagram famous. You know, I never wanted to be this. Like, this was never my goal. I just wanted to be a principal. You know, then I wanted to be, um, you know, run a school, you know, in the D. Like, that's all I ever wanted to do, you know. And so I, 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 I looked up to, you know, like I said, I can go on and on, you know, Mega Evers, you know what I'm saying? Like, the journey of truth, Harriet Tubman, like, these are the people I... Booker T. Washington. These are the people I study. You know, Frederick Douglass. Like, you know, he paid to get his freedom. You know what I'm saying? Like, I never wanted to be famous. And I think too many of the young people who follow me, they want to be what they think I am. This is what social media made me. You want to be what I really am. 90% of the work that I do is free. Like, you can go online and listen to my stuff for, like, if you listen to one thing a, a day, you can listen one day for 11 years straight for free. That's how much free content I got on. You, you, you know what I'm saying? But everybody, you want to get on stage. Like, that's not what I do. I'm on stage every blue moon. I don't live on stage. I'm at Michigan State. Nobody ever calls like, I want to go do that advantage program you do with the 100 kids at Michigan State. It's like, you like, I want to talk to NBA players. No, you don't. I don't make money talking to NBA players. You don't want to do that. You think you want to do it because you see me with CP3 and you think you want to be with CP3. That's not where I make my money. And how I make my money is corporate. And while I'm super grateful for that, I never signed up to do corporate work. Now, I'm grateful that I have the ability to do it because they pay a little bit better than everywhere else. You know, but I would just say to kids, figure out what people's needs are and, and meet the needs, man. When you start meeting the needs of a CP3, you'll be shocked how reciprocity works. And do it not to look for anything, but just do it because you generally want to help people with whatever gift you have, I have the gift to inspire. I don't know why. God just gave me a gift to, like, people want to commit suicide after they finish having the conversation. They just be ready to live again. Like, I don't know why. And so I just give it away. And and I allow speaking to be what it is. So if you want to be like me, man, study your ancestors, figure out their heart, why they made the sacrifices they made, and let's let's emulate 
in our culture what they did, you know, back then. Well, what you just talked about is is kind of one of the core principles that you talk about in the book, which is finding your why and building off whatever your superpower is. Your superpower uh, obviously is is connecting with people. When did you realize that this was a superpower that you could build an entire living around? Let me go before the living because I never knew I could make a living out. But the first time I was like, whoa, I was on uh, Puritan and Ward. It's a little small. What do they call it? Shotgun church. Like you could walk in and see the end, the beginning, you can see everything. And they had a, they, my, I was going with my boy because I was homeless. So I was going with him and they asked the youth for we could pray. You know, they always doing stuff in the summer with young people. So I was like, all right, I want to do it. And so I didn't get one of the premium days. You know what I'm saying? The pastor's son always get, you know, the big day. You know what I'm saying? I got one of the like, you know, the, the Tuesday evening or something. And I remember preparing for my message. And that was the first time in my life that I ever did something academic and I enjoyed it. You know, like reading, doing my homework, researching the word. And then I would practice in the mirror every day. I was homeless. I was walking the streets practicing. And I remember speaking and I never felt that good before. You know, I had never felt that, you know, like comfortable. Like it was whack. I'm probably probably my wackest message ever. But I I mean, I felt good doing it. And, and, And the people were like, yo, got something. And I knew I, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And when I was in college, somebody invited me to a church, uh, some civil rights leaders. They actually asked me to come, you know, and, and, and speak. And they gave me some money. They gave us like whatever offerings we would raise. It was like, you can have that. And I was just like, what? It was like, yeah, you can have the offerings and we'll teach you how. To. And so I was like, I can make money doing this. And it was like 1000%. I wasn't doing corporate then. I might have got fifteen hundred from a middle school, five thousand, you know, from a um, elementary school. But I never did it for money. I was still in Michigan State. Like I'm getting my PhD. I'm gonna work at Michigan State as a professor. Uh, but again, when I started making good, good money from it, I was like, all right, I can do more for our community making this kind of money and volunteering my time than I can if I stay on campus. What's really um, dope and, and I think great about you is because uh, you tell this story in the book, and I know you've told it publicly before, is that you are able to maintain yourself in any environment, right? Whether it's corporate, whether talking to me, talking like they're going to get basically the same person, the same energy, all of that, um, you know, to the point where, like, uh, I think it's great that you're able to go in these corporate environments with that because, so many, I mean, even I have to, I'll be totally honest, even when I go into those environments, I got to amend slightly. Slightly bothered. <laughs> <laughs> slightly. I got to be, I got to amend a little bit, you know, message still the same, but it's like, I got to be like, okay, you know, I can't go too hard on these white folks, right? <laughs> so I got to amend a little bit, you know, and, but I think it's great that you, you have been able to maintain so much of yourself. Uh, before I get to the game that I play with every guest and get you out of here, I will say, Maybe the funniest moment, I think, in your book is when you talked about how you and your wife, Didi, who you referenced earlier, y'all went to the courthouse to get married and matching short sets. And that's the most Detroit thing I've ever heard of in my life. Because that's what we do in the D, matching short sets with your boot. That's what we do. That's what we do. Yeah. 
Look, no question. No question. See the point. See the you point. Know, yeah. you know, no question. No question. I was like, I tell you what's gonna happen, because I did it after prom. We went to see the point. Me and my boo in a moment. We went, we had on some matching jabos and a Tasmania devil t-shirt. Y'all ain't real. If you don't do that, it ain't a real relationship. You ain't real. Exactly. You ain't real unless you do that. And even now, my husband, who's from Southwest Detroit, we go somewhere, he'd be like, What you wearing so we can coordinate? I'm like, wow. No question. No question. It's just what we do. <laughs> so I, I, yeah. I very much enjoyed that. And my mom, her second marriage, she also got married at that same Toledo courthouse. So yeah, nobody ever said that. So see, this is Detroit thing. Nobody ever referenced that story. <laughs> yes, because yeah. I, I saw that, and I, when I tell you, I screamed. I was like, oh my god, not matching shorts. <laughs> I'm gonna need you to post that picture one day, E. I'm gonna need you to post that all picture. Right, all right, all right. kind of private, but I'll be like, boo. We were, we were asked to do it. Please put it up. So I put it up. She got to put it up. All right. Before I get you out of here, E, there's a game I play with every guest who appears on the podcast. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. The rules of the game are very simple. I give you two choices and you got to make one. First up. Since we are uh, in the D and we're talking about Detroit so much, better made hot chips or better made barbecue chips? Come on now. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> right. How does work? I just had a bag recently and I smoked them things. Oh my God. It was like. Hot. Yeah. You can get barbecue anywhere. Yes, yes. Uh, but the hot chips are it. Now, since you you were born in Chicago, you grew up in Detroit, who do you want to see win a championship first, the Bulls or the Pistons? Bad boys. Isaiah. Yeah, no question. <laughs> Definitely the Pistons, you yeah, said? Yeah, bad boys all day. Better voice, James Earl Jones or Maya Angelou? Ooh, girl, you try to get me killed. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. You got to have the ancestors roll over. I got to go with James Earl Jones. One of the greatest voices ever. Um, vacation Bible school. Because they don't know the real G's was in vacation Bible school. Like, that was... <laughs> That was something else. Vacation Bible school or revivals? I got to go with vacation Bible school because you eat. <laughs> Revival is hot. You in a tent outside. The chairs are uncomfortable. They preach all day. The music. Vacation Bible school is all about the kids. I'm going BBS, baby. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know if, it, if revivals last uh, four hours or 45 straight hours. I was like, God, it's never ending. It's just, it's just 45 straight hours. I'm telling you. Never ending. All right. And finally, since Dr. King is one of your heroes, letters from a Birmingham jail or a, I have a dream. I know you. And I'm going with, I know you appreciate this. I need the letters. Yeah, I need the letters. It's just something about writing. Same. I need the letters. It's more intimate yep. writing versus listening. So I'm going with I'm going with the letters for the Birmingham jail. <laughs> I feel you. It's my it's my favorite as well. Um, well, look, E, thank you so much for thank spending you. this time with me. As you thank said, you. we never get a chance to like sit yeah. and talk and yeah. and just really be in fellowship. So I was very appreciative of this conversation and that you were so willing to give me your time. I can't. I already. Prior to this conversation, I, I I texted Rodney and I was like, "Guess who I got on the podcast?" He, he texted me in the middle of our. I couldn't see what he was saying because it just scrolled out, but that's what he was probably geeked about. Because he always like, you know, he just be geek. He always tells me a list of the people that he's the the mentees that surpassed him. He has a list, and he's always calling that list out to me. So 
Praise God. Praise God. Yeah, definitely. He's a, a great person. And as I mentioned, uh, yeah. married yeah. me and my husband. I've known him for years. I used to go to his church when I lived in Lansing. So he just fantastic. Him, Murray. And you and you dropped another name uh, in the book, uh, another Michigan State administrator, Lee June, the man with the longest title in history. <laughs> the OG of Michigan State University. He's still he's still a professor there. So it's unbelievable. It is. Uh, well, anyway, good luck with everything that you're doing. And I know I'll see you all over in the internet because I know how you do. And if I could yeah. ever be of service to you, you please let me know. And I promise I won't charge you. <laughs> so we have to do something in the D together. We'll figure it out. But Absolutely. The D, Michigan State, both, either or, I'm in. So just let me know. Man, I appreciate you, man. Keep being great. Eric Thomas is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Now, before I get into the fuck shit that's bothering me this week, let me remind you all to follow Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify, as well as please follow the other Unbothered Network shows, Sanctified and the Black Girl Bravado. Listen and support. Time for the fuck shit. Why does it seem like every Black History Month, somebody or people in general always do the fucking most in the worst fucking way? And fuck it, I'm bothered. I'm bothered because the mayor of Miami unveiled a Black History Month police cruiser. I'm dead ass serious. The police cruiser has red, black and green paint and images of Africa on it. I truly wish I was making this shit up. So let me get this straight. Black people have asked that the police stop murdering us, excessively beating us, disrespecting us, taking away our dignity and for more transparency and accountability. And they came up with making a police cruiser look like it was once driven by the brothers from X-Clan. That's the solution. Carter G. Woodson is doing a Michael Jackson-like spin in his grave. I would have loved to have been in the meeting when it was decided that this terrible fucking idea was the best way to celebrate Black History Month. Because if this was the best idea they could come up with, what the fuck was the worst one? Putting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s face on their billy clubs? Have red, black, and green badges and handcuffs? I mean, in February, instead of hearing the sounds of sirens, they're going to play two live crew. As bad as this idea seems, the Miami PD weren't the only ones to do it. In Columbus, Ohio, the police introduced their newest cruiser, which they called History One. Red, black and green stripes along the passenger and driver's sides. But here's the punchline. On the back of the cruiser is a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. quote. Problem is, the quote they use is fake. He never even said the shit. They just made some shit up. So instead of maybe having their officers undergo some anti-racist training, clearly maybe take a couple history classes or I don't know, take some of their massive budget and put that money back into the black communities that they often terrorize. We got the police riding around in Wakanda RX-7s. And by the way, how's that going to look when they inevitably detain or arrest someone black and then throw them in the Black History Month cruiser? How's that work? I have to brace myself 
every Black History Month because shit like this always happens. Some horrid institution or person who is a symbol of the anti-blackness that black people are trying to fight feels this compulsive need to acknowledge or performatively celebrate Black History Month. I feel very comfortable in speaking for all black people when I say this. Y'all can keep that shit forever. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.